Well, good morning again. So um, if you noticed, I didn't teach last week or the week before, and uh, we are really blessed to have so many people able to get into God's Word. I uh, thank you to Dave two weeks ago and Paul last week. Um, again, we're just so blessed to have different voices and not hear the same person over and over. Um, so grab your Bible if you have one. If you don't, there's one in the, the seat in front of you in the little cage. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, like I said, this, this is a, a Bible. And if you've never read it, it's kind of a cool book. Um, it's split into Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament really is primarily about how God worked through Israel um, in, in Israel. And then the New Testament is the New Covenant where Jesus fulfills a lot of the prophecies, um, fulfills the law, fulfills the covenants in the Old Testament. One big story. It's 66 books written by 40 authors uh, over a span of 1,500 years. And it tells one story. It's pretty cool. But if you've read it, you've probably come across some things that make you go, what? Like, for real? You know, I mean, there's some crazy things. Like, a guy got swallowed by a big fish. Say what? You, you know? Or uh, the, the guy's, like, on his donkey, and he's beating the donkey. The donkey's like, hey, stop hitting me. What? Did that donkey actually talk? I, I mean, go through. There's all these crazy things, right, that happen. You know, Peter going along, and, and the guy's begging, you know, and he's crippled, and, and he's like, give me some money. He's like, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'll give to you. Stand up and walk. And the guy starts skipping around. What? Did that really happen? Now, as we read with our modern Western, you know, the year 2022 minds, we're going to read some of these things and struggle. We're going to be confused, maybe, maybe because of some things that it looks like it's telling us about God, we'll go, ooh, that doesn't jive with how I view God. Or, or maybe the world will see some things, ooh, that doesn't jive. And so with our modern minds, we might question or doubt or wrestle with what, it, what it's saying. Um, I came across a sermon while preparing this just this week that was really relevant. It was a sermon preached 100 years ago. 1922, um, and this sermon was actually pretty influential, uh, and this pastor was pretty influential at the time. In fact, um, he was a, a Baptist preacher at a Presbyterian church. He got fired from there, um, so uh, some rich guy, forget his name, built this temple in New York, um, big giant church, and he became the pastor of that. Anyway, he wrote this sermon, and he preached this sermon, and in it, he was claiming a need to update Christianity, his claim was that with our modern minds, we have new knowledge, which makes us need to read it differently. So he, he looked at the generations. He said, if, if we're not going to lose the next generation of believers, we need to update Christianity so that they can accept it, right? We need to adjust some things. And he wrote this, or he, he preached this. He says, they insist, now they is people like me. Um, he called them the fundamentalists. Uh, now, when we think of fundamentalists nowadays, we think of the, the really strict, right, um, don't drink, don't smoke, women wear skirts, all that stuff. That's what we think of. But it started out meaning those who stand on the fundamentals of Scripture, right? The basic things that we see in Scripture, no, these are fundamental, we stand on those. In response, there's this preacher and many others who labeled themselves progressive or liberal saying, we don't have to stand on those fundamentals anymore. We've graduated out of that. And so here's what he says. He says, they insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles. 
preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in special theory of inspiration, that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. And that we must believe in the second coming of our Lord as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy uh, conclusion. So are some of the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. So he just listed some of those things that now, with our modern knowledge, we can throw out. The virgin birth. The, the, the doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died and his blood covers our sins and we can be made right with God through, through that. So if you do this, if you throw out those basic doctrines, you don't have an updated Christianity, you have a whole new religion, right? If Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins, honestly, our faith is in vain. What are we even doing? And honestly, time has, has showed this to be true. So since then, 100 years ago, this has really moved through the mainline Protestant denominations, and they have declined significantly. The, the, this temple that was built for him, right, there was even an article recently looking at that church and how few people even go there anymore because it's, it's not a religion that gives anything. It doesn't have any answers. It doesn't have any truth. It just has, let's all feel good, and, and we'll use this, but we don't really believe this. The truth is we need to accept what Scripture says, but we need to accept it in context. So sometimes as we're reading through, we're like, that's crazy. Maybe it is crazy, and maybe it's symbolic, right? In the New Testament, in Revelation, we see a picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Does he have a sword coming out of his mouth? No, that's symbolic for something, and so we need to learn how to read the Bible. Now, we're going to start at the beginning today, Genesis chapter 1. It's going to be really easy to find. Just open, right? Just flip. You'll see the table of contents. You get right to the beginning. But we're going to look here, and the question I want to ask is, does our modern new knowledge mean we have to throw out the creation account? Does our new knowledge of science mean this should be read differently than it's traditionally been read? If you've uh, been to public school in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, you've been taught just the assumption that evolution is true. If you've watched any documentary... They all just assume, hey, this animal has been there for billions of years and it formed out of it. It's just an assumption across society now that evolution created what we see. And because of that accepted science in our modern knowledge, a lot of Christians have said, okay, we need to reconcile what the Bible says with evolution. We need to make them coalesce and come together. 20 years ago, I read a book trying to do exactly that, arguing that there is a God, but he created through evolution and those things. Well, I hope we can answer some of that by looking at the creation account and asking the question, what can we know for sure based on Genesis chapter 1? So just to start with, I'm just going to read Genesis chapter 1. And so you can do what you want. You could follow along. Um, you could just listen, close your eyes, and maybe even picture it, right? Like picture the darkness and the star and God creating, whatever you want to do. But I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1. And then we're going to talk about it. We're not going to go verse by verse through it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. 
God, I ask that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds this morning. God, that you would get bigger in our hearts and in our minds. God, that we would get smaller, uh, but not in a, in a false humility, but in a right way, that we would see you as you are, and we would glorify you. We would worship you well. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to understand the meaning of any scripture, you have to look at context. Who is writing? Who are they writing to? What type of literature is it, right? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it apocalyptic? Is it narrative? Whatever it is determines how we read it. And here's something very, very important. Meaning is defined by the writer, not the reader, right? The writer, whoever wrote it down, had an intent as they wrote it. That is the only thing it can mean. Now, we can apply it different ways, but it only means what the original writer intended the original readers to know and understand. So who wrote Genesis? His name was Moses. When did he write it? A long time ago. <laughs> he wrote it about 1500, 1300 maybe, B.C. So about 3,500 years ago-ish, right? He didn't write to us. He wrote to the Israelites. This isn't a science book, right? It's not written to American Western minds, although we can look at it with those minds and draw out. He was writing to Israel. Where had Israel been? They had been in Egypt for 400 years enslaved. So God brought them out of Egypt miraculously. We're going to look at that. That's going to be fun. Um, but he brought them out, and he was bringing them to the promised land. But in, that, in there, he was having to do something with them, right? They were messed up. They'd been in, in Egypt a long time. They, they were wrestling with who is God? Are the Egyptian gods gods? Are there many gods? All this stuff. And so God is having to make some things clear to them. And so Moses wrote this to the Israelites while they're wandering in the wilderness. Now, again... Moses didn't write it. God wrote it through Moses. Now, I told you it can only mean what the writer intends it to mean. Have you ever done this? God, I need a message from you. <laughs> that is the worst way to try and get a message from God. I'll be honest with you. Because when you do that, you grab a verse and be like, that applies to me. Well, the story goes of a guy who did that. And he flips open, God, I want a message. And he opens to Matthew 27, 5, which says, he departed and went and hanged himself. <laughs> so he tries again. He flips, closes his eyes, stabs, right? He gets to Luke 10, 37. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. <laughs> he's like, he's getting nervous, right? He flips, <laughs> stabs again, and he gets John 13, 27. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. <laughs> you, you see how that's not the best way to get a message from God. <laughs> Rather, we want to look at why it was written, to whom it was written, and then we can make some application. So, again, this is Moses, and he is writing to the Israelites who came out of Egypt, and in Egypt, as in every pagan culture, they had great creation myths. And we have a lot on record from all these other you know, cultures, even in that time, creation myths of many gods and how these gods were created and whatever, and mankind, some of them, uh, was created by the blood of one of the gods when, when they got in a fight and he bled, and yeah, anyway. God is writing to set the record straight for his people. And again, it is God writing. 2 Peter 1, I want to read this real quick. 2 Peter 1, uh, 20 to 21, kind of gives us some instruction, uh, some understanding of how Scripture is written. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write it down. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scriptures comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we believe the Bible is inspired. That he took personalities, Moses was a personality, he took him, and then the Holy Spirit carried him along to write what he wrote. Now Moses was even unique among the biblical writers. Moses met with God face to face. Moses would meet with God in this tent of meeting, and then his face would shine, and he had to wear a veil. So he had even a, a more unique communication with God. So, I mean, he was probably, like, talking to God and writing it down, right? So God gave this. This isn't, I, I tell you that because many would say Genesis is just a collaboration of all the other stories in the world that, during that time. Like, they, they took some from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, they took some from Samaria. They took some, and they made their own. No. God gave this to Moses to give to his people. It's not just a, a bringing together of other ideas in the day. And we're going to see a theme. It begins in Genesis and carries out. A theme really of sin and judgment and God's grace. So this is going to be on screen, or you can write this down. Genesis was written as true history to give the Israelites a correct understanding of their identity, their relationship to God, and a clue to God's plan of redemption. That's why Genesis is written. It's written as narrative, meaning true history. It's not written as myth. It's not written as, as poetry. It's not apocalyptic. It's written as narrative. And narrative is written as this is what happened. So Moses intends us to believe that this is actual history. So what can we learn? Now, that's the question I began with. What can we know for certain based on Genesis 1, the creation account? First thing, look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. That's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. What can we know? The universe had a beginning. All creation had a beginning. There was a time when this was not. In the beginning, meaning God is outside of time. God created time. Uh, science, you know, again, this is our, our modern mind. We know so much more. Science had what was considered the steady state theory for a long time that the universe was eternal. Only more recently, science has looked at the universe and gone, it's expanding, meaning it had a beginning. And so they're like, oh, Big Bang. We'll call it the Big Bang. Well, how did the Big Bang happen? Well, there was nothing. And you can look up these quotes. And then the nothing exploded, and we got this. So science now actually goes back and agrees with what the Bible said. There was a beginning. And so there was a beginning, and in the beginning, God. Who is God? Again, remember, Moses is writing, God is writing through Moses to his people to let them know who he is. This is the first, in the beginning, God. That is the word Elohim. It is not the word Yahweh. Yahweh will come later, God's personal covenant name with his people. This is the word Elohim, and it's very unique. It's actually very special. The word Elohim, it means divine. It means judge, ruler. It is trying to convey that God is completely sovereign. He is the one overall. He is not kind of one God among many, right, fighting for control. He is completely sovereign. This is God. Uh, the word is masculine. So God in Scripture is referred to as Father, as He. Elohim here is masculine. Is God a male? No. <laughs> no. But when He revealed Himself in Jesus, right, when He came as Je Jesus, was a male. But again, in our modern mind, in our modern world, we need to throw the idea out of, of God as male, right? And, and let's call him a her. God can be a her. You can't do that. 
that for some reason, Scripture has, has made it clear and represented God as male. And there's part of that in creation, which helps us even understand how we work. But we can't throw that part out. So God is um, Elohim, divine, sovereign. The word is masculine. And Elohim is plural. That's weird. Because later, just a little bit later in Genesis, it's going to say God is one. In the Shema, which is what the, the Jews would repeat over and over and over, and we can gain so much from, there is one God, and we must believe in one God. Well, here, Elohim is plural. So is there one God or many gods? What's it mean? Well, the plural is in there helps denote majesty. That's part of it. It helps denote majesty. But is it a, uh, a view toward the Trinity? Because many have argued that, that you see plural there because of the Trinity. Well, we do know from John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word spoke. So Jesus, and then it reveals in John 1 that the Word is Jesus. So Jesus, the pre-incarnate second member of the Trinity, is present at creation and is the Word that's creating. And then verse 2, look at verse 2. Uh, the earth was at form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's the Spirit. So right here at the beginning, you have Father, Son, and Spirit. So is this teaching the Trinity? No, probably not. But God's name denotes majesty and allows for the future revelation of the Trinity. It allows for it. Now, what else can we gain? As we're looking at this, again, Moses is writing specifically to the Israelites coming out. This is something I think is interesting. Why in verse 16 does he refer to the sun and the moon as greater light and lesser light? This is just one of those weird things, right? Why doesn't he say sun and moon? Because they were coming out of Egypt. And in Egypt, the sun and the moon were gods. So the words used for sun and moon represented gods. As in all pagan religions, have the same thing, right? Um, go through any of those pluralistic you know, religions of many gods, um, sun and moon are gods. And so he won't refer to sun and moon because that could have been confusing to the Israelites at this time. He says greater light and lesser light because the sun is no god. The moon is no God. He is trying to, to make something clear. He took them out of Egypt, and now he's trying to take Egypt out of them, right? They were struggling with what to believe. And so even the words that he uses, again, this isn't written to us. It's written for us, but it's written to them. The creation account makes clear that God is sovereign over all things. That is a big point of Genesis 1. Again, it's not a science textbook. It's not trying to teach us science. It's trying to teach us God is sovereign which we need. That's a big deal. Now, how does he create? Again, science now would say, you know, nothing comes out of, or nothing can come out of nothing, has to come out of something. But here we see God created with a word. So God spoke and everything was created, right? I mean, one at a time, but it was out of a word. He created out of nothing, right? Ex nihilo, if you like all that Latin stuff, right? Ex he created out of nothing. Nobody else can create out of nothing, but God created out of nothing. Everything except, turn to chapter two real quick. Chapter two uh, really hones in on God creating man and woman. So Genesis chapter one, it's kind of an overview. And then Genesis two zooms in and looks at God creating of man and woman. In verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Look at that. Everything else God speaks. But when he went to create man, he took the dirt. So you guys made a dirt. 
Um, he took the dirt, molded it, and then breathed life. Look how intimate and hands-on that is. That is there to teach us something about us, right? We are made in the image of God. But then look at how he created the woman as well. Uh, the woman, if you zoom down to... Mm, there we are, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed it up uh, the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created everything but man out of nothing but a word. Intimate with man and then intimate with woman. And you see the relationship between man and woman in this, which teaches us about marriage, which teaches us about the value of, of women and the value of men in God's image. There's so much here that teaches us who we are. This is a miracle. God creating out of a word is a miracle. And again, during this series, we're going to be looking at a lot of miracles. Why is it that people reject things like the creation, the virgin birth, the resurrection, because they throw out the miraculous. Our modern mind says we can only know what we can see, what we can test, what we can prove. But if you throw out the miraculous, you have to throw out the entire Bible. You do. But if God created everything with a word, everything else in here is really easy to get. It is. If I accept that God spoke and created, and then God created dirt and breathed into him, and then God created, if I accept that, which we're intended to accept that, then somebody being swallowed by a fish, no big deal. Right? God's separating a sea. Eh, right? That's just like a Saturday afternoon for him. Any of that. Jesus rising from the dead. No big deal if the creation account is true and it's written to be accepted as true history. Miraculous. Let me ask a question. So I'm hoping to have a little fun through this series, right? We're not doing a verse-by-verse -verse study so much. We're looking at kind of ideas and events. In our modern mind, right, the earth is really, really old, billions of years old. And so many, as you read this, and maybe you've already asked the question in your mind, when did this happen? How old is the earth? Right? Because some, are, it has to be billions of years old. Some Christians, it has to be less than 10,000 years old. Right? Old, old earth, young earth. Old creation, new, what is it? How old is the earth? Well, let's ask that just real quick because people are going to ask it. And as you read Genesis, why would some say it's a young earth? Because they read the genealogies and they do the math. That's where that comes from primarily because there are many genealogies in Scripture which are important. Uh, they might be super boring. You might want to flip over those, but they are helpful. They give ages in those things. The thing is, is sometimes in genealogies, it does skip generations. And so you... I'll be honest, you can't really read the genealogies and do the math and go, Boop, it's exactly this. Because that, that's not consistent with, with reading scripture. But why would some say it's so old? A couple reasons. The main reason is evolution needs billions of years. Therefore, it must be billions of years old. That's where that kind of started, that the earth was so old. Oh, evolution must be true, and so it takes so long for things to happen, so it's, it's old. And then you have... Tests, right? Uh, testing, uh, uh, radiometric, carbon dating, all these things. How old is something? And if you've studied that, you realize that the testing methods are pretty much circular. So, so how long ago did this animal exist? Well, what layer was it found? 
Well, how old is that layer? That's how old that animal is. Okay, how old is this layer right here? Well, what animals do you find in it? That's how old it is. And so you kind of have this circular reasoning of the age. Also, if you study carbon dating and some of those things, they have assumptions. They assume levels of carbon and things were the same at the beginning, right? And so science has, oh, we know this. Well, you don't. We are assuming certain things where if the flood was true, the earth was very different before the flood and after the flood. So again, those dating methods really are not consistent. And I can go through, you know, examples of where they have failed, um, where uh, Mount St. Helens, just go look up that one and how they've dated things from that. And they proved to be way older. We know that was 1980. Um, I don't remember. I was one. Maybe you remember, right? So anyway, these dating methods don't work. They're inconsistent. But also, let's be honest, we look around, the earth looks old. Things look old. Let's just be honest with that. It looks old. There was a star recently found called Arendelle. They named it Arendelle. I think it's 12.5 million light years away. Maybe it's billion. 12.5 billion light years away. And so they look at that and go, well, then the universe must be at least that old because that's how long it takes for the light to get from that star to here. So if we can see it, it's been 12 and a half billion years for it to get from there to here. Well, let's answer some of this. What do we know? Well, in Genesis 1, God created in six days. That's what we know. He created in six days. Are these 24-hour days? Some debate that. Some say there's a gap between day one and day two. That's the gap theory that God created, and then billions of years, and then he did some more. Or some will say a day is like a, you know, a thousand years. It says that elsewhere in Scripture. A day is like a thousand years to God. And so the days are not literal 24-hour days. I, uh, it, the best reading... The most literal reading is their 24-hour days, right? Each day, he says, this created, and then there was evening, and there was morning. The best reading is that these are probably 24-hour days. And if we believe in the miraculous, that's no big deal. So God created in six days. That's what we do know. And again, that's the most straightforward understanding of it. Um, and here's what else we know, and this is in your notes, or you can write it in. God created each item complete. God created everything complete. Look at verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Then you see that with the animals, each according to its kind. God created each thing complete. Now, can adaptation happen? Absolutely, right? Can dogs interbreed and get weird and whatever and, and you know, yeah. So that's microevolution stuff and that's absolutely. But here, macroevolution, there's no need for it, no room for it, because God created everything complete, right? And here's the other thing. Again, look around. God, I mean, everything looks old, but here's what else we know. God created the earth with age. How do we know that? The trees are created, looks like, with fruit on them with their seed. So when God spoke the apple tree, it wasn't a seed. It was an apple tree. And if you've ever grown apple trees, it's really frustrating how long you have to wait till it produces apples, right? We planted some a couple years ago, and I watch them, and, and yeah, nothing. Um, some take five to ten years to produce fruit. So he put these there with fruit on them. Adam, how old was Adam when he was created? He wasn't an infant. He was created as a grown man. And Eve was a grown woman. They were, their first instruction was, go have sex, right? It was. It was be fruitful and multiply, Husband and wife, they were created with age. The stars, the sun, the moon, then the stars. The stars were created. Why were they created? 
Well, in Psalms, it tells us that they declare the glory of God. How do they declare the glory of God? We look at them, we're like, that is awesome. But they're also used, you see here in Genesis, for dating, right? So you can watch them and you can mark days, months, years, all those things. Well, how good is that if you can't see them? The closest star, I think, is four light years away. And so if he didn't create it with age, four years later, I would be like, look, a star, right? And then another 20 years, he's like, look, another star. No, it was all created with age, meaning they could see the stars. So light ran the, the, all the way all, at one time. Here's my point with all that. Genesis leaves no room for evolution. Genesis leaves no room for evolution. We, we don't need to try and wrestle with evolution and the Bible. We can accept the Bible as it is. Does this mean we're anti-science? No, absolutely not. But we interpret it biblically. We look at the, the data and interpret it biblically. What else do we know? All things were created to benefit mankind who were formed in God's image. As you see, he created all these things for us, right? The heavens declare his glory. He wants us to get to know him. He creates the trees with fruit on them for us to enjoy. He created the garden incomplete. It needed man to cultivate it, right? It, that's kind of unique. It looks like man was given a job right at first. He, he creates him. He's like, and by the way, those trees are going to die if you don't get water to them quick. <laughs> so he had a job to do. It was all created for us, made in God's image. This is huge. What do we learn as we look at Genesis 1 and 2? We are unique. Men and women are unique in God's image, and we have value, eternal value. No other worldview gives people the value a biblical worldview does. Why is it that all these pagan societies, all those in Egypt, everywhere else, they don't really value human life, right? They have a baby and they don't want the baby. It was just accepted. Just go kill the baby. No big deal. Why? No value of human life. Jesus, or I'm sorry, God was letting his people know through Moses writing this, I created and I made you special and unique and you are in my image. That's a big deal, right? Even the view of how we are to take care of creation, right? To, to cultivate it, to, to subdue it, whatever. This was all made for us. We are unique. Every human has eternal value because they are created in God's image. Here's something else that I think is kind of cool. Again, God is teaching the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt, going to the promised land. What does he do on the seventh day? He rests. He rests and he enjoys the work of his hands. That's there on purpose. He's doing that so that the Israelites who were slaves, right? I mean, they worked, worked, worked. And his thing, he gave them the Sabbath and he said, one day a week, stop working and enjoy the fruit of your labors. Stop working and worship me. God rested, not because he needed to rest. He wasn't tired, right? He's not like, whew, that was a lot of hard work. No, he stopped and enjoyed what he made. That's really cool. Like God wants us to work and then enjoy his creation and enjoy even the fruits of our labor. That's something we learn about God. God is not limited by natural law. Here's something else I want to point out that I think is kind of weird. Look at verse... Uh, Three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. Anybody see a problem? He hadn't created the sun yet. 
He didn't create the sun until day four. Moses must have messed up, right? He must have heard God wrong. He got those days mixed up. I don't know what happened. How can God create light one day and then the sun, the moon, and the stars four days later? Well, God is outside of, of natural law. God can do whatever he wants. God is not limited, but I think there's more to it. The Bible is complete. It took 1,500 years to write Genesis, but it ends with Revelation, which, by the way, isn't written to you either. It's not written to Americans today. It was written to, to groups uh, in the Greek-speaking world at that time. But in Revelation, we do see glimpses of the future. So in Eden, we see this perfect creation, right, before sin. We're going to look at, at the fall. But we see this perfect creation where the sun is not needed for light. In, in Revelation 21, 23, this is after Jesus returns and creation is remade and the curse is removed. It's going to be sweet. You want to be there. But Revelation 21, 23 says this. Speaking of that, this new creation, this new place, there's no need of sun or moon to shine for, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. What if here in Genesis 1, God himself is the light at first? It doesn't say that, but we do know at the end, we're going to be with God, with Jesus face to face, and, and he is the light. We don't need the sun. I think we'll have the sun. Revelation doesn't say there won't be a sun. It says we won't need it because he'll be the light. He'll be the lamp. Look at the Bible. It's so complete from Genesis to Revelation. God created. We all messed it up, and he's going to fix it. And he himself is going to be present like he was at the beginning with us. Now, the story of the Bible culminates in Jesus. Right here, it begins with this creation account, which we need, the Israelites needed. And it begins to show who God is, who we are with him, and his plan of redemption. Because very quickly, we mess it up. Genesis chapter 3, the fall. And the rest of the Bible is all about God trying to fix what we messed up, his plan of redemption. And it all is going to point to Jesus. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, who we see in Genesis 1, as the creator, Jesus will return. He came once. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. Based on that, we can have life in him and look forward to the recreation of Genesis 1. And we are going to be part of it, and we're going to be there perfected. All that sin that y'all have, it's going to be gone. If you've placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, you will enjoy the new creation. Let me pray. God, I, I thank you so much. Um, I thank you that we can get a glimpse, uh, although Genesis is not a creation uh, science book, uh, we can't understand everything with that, but we can understand some things, that you are God. You are sovereign. You love us. You made us for a relationship with you. And the only time where we are living the way is we're supposed to, that fulfills us, is, is when it's in relationship with you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to restore our relationship with the Father. Thank you that we are confident you are coming back and are going to set it all right. God, we're looking at these miracles, this one and the others, and God, we believe them. We don't think we're smarter than you with our modern human minds. We're not going to get it all. We understand that. But we trust you. And God, we do ask... As we read, when we come across things that we doubt or we struggle with, uh, help us to have right understanding. Some things maybe we're not supposed to take literally. Help us to understand when that is. But some we are. And God, I ask that you would give us the faith to accept what is true because you are God 
And Jesus, you are our Lord. God, if anybody in here has not surrendered to you as Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would see you, Jesus, say, I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. And I give my life to you. You are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.